Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with a focus on foreign interference, of course. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will join us for that. With the world entering a period of scarcity, is Canada's economy on the right track? And we cover all things in American politics. Busy weekend down there, too. Reggie Cicchini from Global News will join us with his Washington report. All coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The drama continues in Ottawa, of course, about uh, foreign interference and the concerns about that. And, I mean, what would a debate in Ottawa be without a little political bombast, right? Uh, we know the, the leaders of the two federal opposition parties, two of the three anyway, are refusing to look at that secret information uh, that led a watchdog to recommend a vote against the public inquiry. Of course, we're talking about David Johnson's report. Uh, Black Quebecois leader Yves-Francois Blanchet is joining the Conservatives here, Polyev, and saying he's not going to take part in any briefings about intelligence about this report. Prime Minister Trudeau says that Polyev, in his words, is hiding behind a veil of ignorance. I think Canadians have to ask themselves the question, is that a serious leader? Is that a serious way to handle something as important as foreign countries trying to mess with our democracy, with our businesses, with our diaspora communities? Uh, heavy words, of course, and uh, there was a retort from Mr. Polyev. We'll get into that a little bit later on, but it's uh, where we're going to jump in today uh, with our weekly look at what's happening in the political scene. And to do that, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, good morning. Great to have you back with us today. Good morning. It's great to be here. Are we spinning our wheels here, or at least the leaders spinning their wheels here? Everybody seems to be talking around this report. Uh, we mentioned two of the three leaders have said that, no, they're not even going to play ball here. Uh, Jagmeet Singh is, is kind of tempering his response here, saying, well, I've got some conditions. Uh, is anything going to come of this whole thing? You know, I'm starting to lose my patience with all of this. If they want an inquiry, well, it's a minority government. So why don't the three of them go to Parliament and tell the Prime Minister that he better do this, or else they're going to make it count? Like... This is craziness. I can't believe how much time we've wasted talking about whether or not Justin Trudeau is friends with David Johnston. Like, who cares? Just do it. And because now we're at the point where there's so many questions about foreign interference, and there's obviously, you know, things that we can't talk about in a public inquiry because it's it's private and it's national security, and we're all going to be worse off if everybody starts leaking everything. But surely we can have a conversation about what it means to protect ourselves from foreign interference and what sorts of things constitute foreign interference and who the threats are and all the rest of it and even when johnson says we're going to have the public hearings well what are we going to talk about in those hearings if he thinks that the content that's necessary you know couldn't come out in a public inquiry so i just think now we just have a bunch of confusion well you know what is adding to the confusion though is is both the prime minister and now the 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 former governor general who we're going to talk about in further detail in a, a second here has written an op-ed piece that's in the globe and mail i know you've seen it and both of them are basically saying look we've known this was going on all along and we've been talking about this all along no they haven't i am not in front of anybody anyway i mean it just all of a sudden they're trying to take ownership of this yeah and i mean I think that there we've seen so far in the committee uh, investigations in parliament that there's discussion about how long governments have been aware of a foreign interference threat and what what they're doing about it. And even um, the chief electoral officer a couple of times has mentioned um, in his annual reports that foreign interference is a thing and his office is not as equipped as it wants to be to be able to respond to those sorts of threats. But I mean, this obviously came to a head 
with these sorts of allegations. And I mean, in Johnson's report, report, he's saying a lot of these allegations are false. And but at the same time, people can't respond to that really without then being in breach of the Securities Act themselves. I don't think that re- people really want to to and people don't expect to to have a public inquiry that actually starts to give voice and and shed light on things that we aren't supposed to know. And people don't, that's not what we're talking about. People want to know that elections are being administered fairly. And so I think, you know, because of the the world we live in, because democracy operates differently than it did before, it's a good thing for us to have this conversation. Other And other places, like other countries are having this conversation. We need to have it in a way that aligns with what our allies are doing so that we know that we're kind of keeping up to what's international best practice in terms of fortifying democracy against threat. So I don't see what the problem is here. But honestly, I think Johnson was was right about one thing when he did put the onus back on Parliament and saying, this is your function. This is the scrutiny function that you're supposed to perform. Yes, that's right. He shouldn't have taken this job in the first place. I'm sorry, Bill, this drives me crazy. And I no, think I you know, hopefully the, the leaders <laughs> are able to... Um, get their heads together and say, look, this is what minority government's about. We actually have the leverage here, so let's do it. Well, yeah, exactly that point. And and we can touch on, on Johnson's letter, his op-ed piece. Where he, essentially, the message of the letter here seems to be, don't worry, I got this. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn over all the stones, uh, which, of course, begs the question, why didn't you do that in the first place? Uh, but the other element to this, too, is, you know, we, we've talked last week, Laurie, about Johnson's reputation, uh, which, well, before we released the report, was was stellar. I mean, he was a, a highly, highly regarded academic and, and, and basically diplomat to a certain extent, of course. Uh, but his area of expertise is not intelligence or counterintelligence. Uh, but all of a sudden, they're leaning on this guy to to kind of get us through this thing right now, I, which only underscores, I think, the feeling that a lot of the opposition MPs are saying this is the wrong guy. Yeah, I mean, at the at the first of all of this, it really did look like Trudeau was panicking, and. I guess, you know, like Johnston has taken on this role as the adult in the room for a number of issues, including like the Leaders Debate Commission, for example. He was running that. Um, no no question Canadians have had. <laughs> Maybe it's past tense. I don't know. Yeah. They had a lot of trust in Johnston. And he was, you know, he obviously was an effective, I think it's obvious, an effective governor general. And um, he's a constitutional lawyer. But I think even that, right, like he came to this as a lawyer not as a politician, which he's not, right? Like he, if he looks at it as a lawyer, he looks at all the evidence and says, well, we can't really talk about this stuff in public anyway, so let's not have an inquiry. Well, that's legal advice. That's not political advice. And if it's political advice, it's not good advice. The prime minister has another problem. He has, he has to show that he is doing things to take this seriously and that he, you know, regardless of whether, even if all of the allegations are false, that doesn't mean we don't have a foreign interference problem. And Canadians deserve to know what that means. And so I think, um, yeah, like for Johnson to say, I got this, which which was what I took from his comments was like, look, I've seen the, I've seen it. I can't tell you about it, but trust me, we don't need an inquiry into this. And given everything that that's going on otherwise, like nobody trusts anybody that much anymore. It's sad, but nobody does. Like, no, I don't think there's anybody in the country who could say, oh, just trust me, I got this. And everybody would say, yeah, OK, that's fine. The other thing that bothered me about this, and I'm getting into the initial report, 
uh, was the uh, as the intent seemed to be first of all, you know what the shortfall here and the and the, and the cracks in the system are with uh, CSIS and with the media who blow things out of proportion, uh, yeah. and that was that was Johnson on Monday or Tuesday rather, and then on Thursday CSIS re- releases a report uh, which by the way was not simply their report it was based heavily on information from the Five Eyes it was this, a global report that was done that basically said that Chinese interference is the greatest threat to Canadian sovereignty and and it's Canada that they're th- that they're focusing on totally contrary to what David Johnson said. Uh, I don't know who he talked to. He said he talked to 30 or 40 people. I, I'm, I'm assuming the five eyes talked to more than that. Uh, and they seem to have a, a better picture of what's going on here. Yet the prime minister seems to be leaning more on David Johnson than he is on his own security forces. And I don't see what the value is of that. Like what, you know, I mean, what, what's the big problem if we had a public inquiry into foreign interference? Like it's the prime minister's decision with respect to whether this thing goes ahead and what the parameters are, as much as he seems to want to give this responsibility to David Johnson, I don't know why, it would be better if he just like dealt with it himself because the accountability for the decision is his, even if he tries to delegate it. The prime minister is the one who's going to be held to account at the end of the day. People are distracted now by the David Johnston story and whether or not he should have taken the appointment, blah, 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 but all that's going to fade away. And, you know, it's it's with doing some damage, I think, to Johnston's legacy, which is unfortunate. But Mr. Trudeau is not going to be able to avoid accountability and responsibility for the way this all played out. He could have done much different with this. And now I really, you know, I think Jagmeet Singh has to decide whether he's part of the government or part of the opposition. And the NDP were really strong in committee, insisting that there needs to be a public inquiry for all kinds of reasons. And so I don't see how he he thinks he can take top secret clearance and go view, look at the documents and then what? Come back and say, oh, no, trust me, David Johnson was right. Like, no, that I, I just don't think it's going to work. How much pressure is on Mr. Singh right now? And, and I'm frankly surprised that uh, that, that Polyev and, and, uh, and the others that have been screaming about this right now, including Blanchette, are not pressuring Jagmeet Singh. I mean, you know, Paulie has a raison d'etre, of course, is to go after Justin Trudeau. It's pretty much personal with him. And I, we understand that, I guess, now. Don't necessarily think it's the right thing to do, but that's where his headspace is. But they, they should be turning their attention right now to Singh and said, are you for us? Or do you want the inquiry or not? You know, I, it, this is this is really where Jagmeet Singh has to stand up and say, this is what I stand for, instead of just saying, well, I've got an agreement. Uh, you know, is, is, is this a big issue or is it not a big issue? It's really on him, I think. I think it is too, because like, not just because the the NDP were so committed to the public inquiry thing during, during all of the committee hearings, they really have, they really have been, but also they, the NDP has championed themselves, the party of democracy and democratic integrity. And they, they, they have long been the kind of, you know, they're trying to occupy the space of being the conscience of parliament, of government. And so I think it's really important when an issue like this comes up, that there is such, you know, a, a fundamental public interest in ensuring that our elections are fair and that we know that, right? Like, even if there's nothing to worry about, clearly people need to know that because the, the system of threats and the realities in the world have changed and people need to be able to trust democracy. I mean, voter turnout is in the garbage already. And, you know, it's it, you can't take it for granted that that's not going to keep getting worse. But if people are looking at this clown show and thinking, oh my God, right? Like the politicians aren't even trying to make sure that this is right. Why should I vote then? Like this, the possibility of this getting significantly worse, I think is, is very real. I had uh, Phil Gursky on the program. Phil, of course, is a former seasons uh, guy who's, uh, who's got his own agency right now. And, and <laughs> to 
categorize it for, quite He was pissed. And I'm sure a lot of people that work for CSIS or, or other uh, intelligence agencies are because he kind of threw them under the bus uh, with his report. And and a little ticked off about the fact that he, she Johnson paid little to no attention about the, the lack of communication within the prime minister's office about this stuff. And as as, as yeah. Phil said, and, and, and I, I reiterated myself the other day, if the president of the United States can find time every day for a daily briefing about what's going on in the world and where the threats are, maybe our prime minister could too, because I've I got to figure he's not, he's, he's no busier than Joe Biden and Biden makes time for it. And in this age of zoom conferences and everything else, you know, I don't care where you are. If there's something that's important, our, our leader should have, have uh, the, the desire to want to know what's going on. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, that that's, I think if we had, an inquiry, or maybe this would come out in these hearings. I don't know. Like, I, I would think that would be the substance of what people ended up talking about. And that seemed to occupy a lot of Johnston's attention as well, is how security information is handled inside government and what the flow of traffic is from PMO, CSIS, like what's really all going on there. And I mean, to be honest, I don't see how it's in the government's interest to not shed light on those processes. Like politically, sure, it's, it might make the government look bad if they look like they're not co as coordinated as they should be on on that kind of thing. Like, but it, that can't be. I mean, even if the public were to become aware of some, you know, screw ups or loopholes or whatever that you know that's happening, that can't be any worse than what's going on now. Like at some point, I think it just makes sense to put this to rest. And again, like I, I just, I can't see how having an inquiry is worse than what's going on now, because for all the reasons you say it, it that every day it looks more like, well, what are you trying to hide? Like, why is it so important to avoid an inquiry? It, we have inquiries regularly. It's, it's fine. <laughs> we'll get through it. Well, I mean, politics 101 says if there's something that could embarrass you or your, your government, uh, your first answer is always, well, that's national security. I can't talk about that. Uh, and we've seen that used time and time again, in, in not just here, but in the States and other places, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the game. We understand that. It's part of the script. So the whole thing is right now, we don't know. Is this really national security or is this something that's going to prove to be extremely embarrassing to the prime minister's office, that they dropped the ball? Somebody somebody made a decision that this wasn't important enough to show the prime minister that, hey, um, you know, this is something we need to address ASAP. Uh, if, if you're to believe what the prime minister says that he didn't find out about this, who made that decision and, and what authority do they have to make that decision? I mean, and, and Johnson's op-ed piece in the Globe today, Laurie, as you've read, he's basically saying, you know, my first report was the past, the second was the future. In other words, he just wants to turn the page. There's still a hundred right. unanswered questions here and he doesn't want to address that. And honestly, like, and I, I don't know, I, I don't know why, that, again, I don't know why that's any better, but I think for Trudeau, even if he went the route of, it, of an inquiry, like, and even if it exposed some of the things that, you know, if the, if there's been screw ups again, like if, if some things in this inquiry were to put his government, his office in, in not a good light, right? And I don't know that that would be the case, but say it was. Trudeau risks losing the next election, not because of that, but because he seems out of touch with people. That is a much bigger risk to him politically than anything that could be, you know, unless we're talking something truly awful that, you know, and, but if, if the inquiry reveals what people kind of expect, honestly, you know, people expect that there are screw ups in government. People expect that things go wrong. Unfortunately, we, we have pretty medium to low expectations of government, to be honest, especially the political side. And so if those things, the suspicions of, of screw ups turn out to be true, 
I think that's not what's going to be a problem for Trudeau in the next election. It's going to be concerns about his lack of, of attention to, to things. And if Polyev manages to win enough people to think that he'd do a more competent job, that's a bigger risk to Trudeau, I think. I uh, can't agree more. And uh, we'll see what the week brings. And uh, uh, it's it shoved everything else. I mean, there's a big election going on in Alberta today, too. And we haven't even had a chance to talk about that. But that'll be a, a future discussion, I guess. Laurie, as always, thank you so much for this. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few days ago, they uh, had a meeting of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Now, that's essentially uh, every mayor, every city councillor, town councillor from uh, communities large and small right across the country. They have an annual gathering. Uh, and oftentimes it's in Ottawa uh, for obvious purposes because there's a lot of federal ministers hanging around. And every now and then you might even have the prime minister around to address uh, a number of the meetings. And that's what happened the other day. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did address the... Uh, as a few days FCM, ago, they uh, had a meeting of the Federation and, uh, of Canadian Municipalities. essentially and all the work that he's trying to do. Uh, every uh, mayor, every issues, city uh, council, like town council, from uh, communities and large and small across the country. They have an annual gathering on housing. Uh, and oftentimes it's in Ottawa uh, we for need obvious purposes. There's a the lot of federal ministers hanging around, and every now and then you might even have the Prime Minister around to address a number of the meetings. That's what happened the other day. Over the coming years. Prime Minister Trudeau did address the FCM, as they call it. And talked about his government's assistance programs and all the work he's trying target. to do on key issues uh, like housing transit. Accelerating and the, the long-term infrastructure plan focusing on housing is going to be revealed you. in the fall. That's why we're stepping we up need for billion dollars to be housing. your partners in this work. Our government and, wants and to see housing went, construction uh, Some other promises about government spending. And, and of course, we know with Christian Freeland's budget a while ago that they talked about some spending programs too. But let's put this in perspective right now. We're having some rough times economically we're trying to climb out of uh, a, a tough economic time because of uh, the pandemic and shutdowns etc that's why we're and there needs to be a discussion about whether or not all this government spending is really helping or hurting uh, what's and, going and on with on our recovery these days and some of the promises about government spending and, and of course we know uh, what inflation actually in budget a while ago that we were on the road to recovery here and all of a I don't know if it's but, a blip let's put this a new pattern whatever right now. But to get uh, some perspective on this, sometimes economic economic we're trying to climb out of uh, a, a tough economic time because uh, Moshe Lander is a, a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. And there needs to be uh, Moshe, a discussion about whether or not all so this government spending today. is really helping or hurting I, I guess uh, what's going on right with our the, recovery these days. You know, the Bank of Canada government actually telling us that the best way we're going to meet inflation and get our recovery back on track is to reduce our spending pattern, whatever. But to get some perspective on this, welcome to Guess back to the program yeah, to yeah. talk about um, these things. You know, I actually uh, Moshe Lander is a uh, senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. During his, his good morning. That, uh, I, I guess let's get right to the, to to the core question. Uh, you know, the Bank uh, of Canada governor, Mr. Macron, keeps telling us that the best way we're going to beat inflation and get our economy back on track is to reduce our spending. Did the government not get that email? They have to deal with blowback from people that are already You know, I actually saw the why am I being the person in Winnipeg last week. And he was actually Well, because people are always going to look to government to try to get us out of a hole. I mean, they use the example of housing, the clip we just played here. Of course, we all know that 
that we need housing. We need more housing starts, etc. And, and the federal government absolutely uh, has a role the, to play there, the maybe a key role to play in, in, that in, in, in that project as we try to get back on our feet from that standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when you look at the inflation numbers and where we're going, as you heard him, the people are always going to look to government to try to get us out of the hole. There's an implication to that, too. Not only are they spending money here, of course we all know that we need housing, we need more housing starts, etc. And the federal government absolutely has a role to play there, maybe a key role to play in costing us even more money on a personal level anyway. That's exactly it. And at the same time, when you look at the inflation numbers and where we're going, we haven't really seen this combination of high inflation and struggling economy. That's our money, happening but there's the an implication to that, too. Not only are they spending years. money so that usually we send there every year, a lot of it mine, it's what I just saw because my there's income excessive amounts of spending that are going on. But over and above that, it's, it's that keeping inflation fixed. alive, which is costing us even more money on a personal level anyway. Off. That's exactly it. And so they have this impossible line to walk because we haven't really seen this combination of high inflation and a struggling economy happening at the same time in almost 50 years. So usually when we see inflation accelerating, it's usually a recession becomes excessive amounts of spending that are going on. They continue to spend, we avoid recession, that's when you get the inflation. You cut back the spending, you raise no wind everybody backs off. Well, I know, and, and they've got, you know, their, their usual list of cliches that they use when they're talking about some of the government spending. And, and, and here in Ontario, I mean, that happened with Doug Ford the other day, and he was talking about the, uh, the announcement from the, the, the Stellantis plan. They're still negotiating with that. But, you know, how many jobs it's going to create. I, I read a, a, a piece, I think it was in the Ottawa Citizen, that I said, we don't need more jobs created here. We can't fill the ones we've got. And that's an overstatement, I guess, but it does, I think, Well, I know, and they've got, you know, their usual list of cliches that they use when they're talking about the government spending is not program. really applicable and here. And in Ontario, that's I mean, usually that one of the lines that you want to use coming out of a recession. The announcement, uh, but, the, but this, the is, uh, this is not our grandfather's recession, is it? But you know how many jobs? No, it's going we're, to create. We're, we're actually talking. I read about, a, 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 a piece. I think it was in the Ottawa Citizen. We don't need more jobs created. We can't fill the ones we've got. Now that's an overstatement, I guess. But it does. I think address one of the points here that that talking point about this is going to create more jobs is not really applicable here. That's usually one of the lines that you want to use coming out of. Recession. You know, uh, so but, but this is uh, this is not our grandfather's recession. Were, uh, 18 months no, ago. and we're we're, we're, we're actually get that talking about back under control. Then we can focus about on the real economy, tight labor market, but it, it record high to let that inflation out of the bag and women properly record it in. low unemployment. It, it almost doesn't matter what's right. going on we don't in the real economy. We've been seeing that people get really twitchy about just rain and inflation. That has to be kind of first and foremost. You know, we're so close to getting back to the way things were. Then you can focus is, on the is there real economy. A chapter in that economics one hundred and one book that, that, that addresses out of the bag situations such as where because it for a lot of us we've we've it never seen this before. Certainly, in the real a lot of politicians economy. haven't seen this before. Uh, we, we've seen that. Yeah, there is a chapter really on it, and unfortunately, it's one of the things that my students like, don't like, and I think about double digits, we're not talking about hyperinflation, so they're not going to like it. Um, people lose their mind, put your hands in your uh, pocket, that, that really does have to be the, this will have to fix itself, because it's is, the only way that you can bring the economy back under control with inflation and eliminate the recession. Because for a lot of us, we've never seen this before, and certainly a lot of politicians have seen this wage demands to be tempered. You know, we saw there is a chapter on it, and unfortunately, it's one of the things that my students don't like, and I think that 
increases, are probably certainly above average. Uh, we saw WestJet um, strike nearly happen. Put your hands and in your pockets. And this incentives for all kinds of other public sector unions. private sector unions. the only way that they can bring the economy back under control with inflation and eliminate the recession. So one way for example to have involved is for this type of demand to be tempered. You know, we saw the government back their hands set pockets. They wanted to be doing something, even if that's doing certainly above average. Uh, we saw well, West and to that point, I mean, when we see happen. our reports, and uh, this could create incentives for all kinds of other anyway. public sector unions, uh, private sector unions, to say, all right, policies is as frugal as the prime um, minister would like if, us to believe the that they are, are, put their hands are in probably helping or hurting the, the, we're, the we're not getting recovery involved. that we're shooting for uh, here. This is the type of and in the global picture, you don't look at the government to put their hands in pocket. If we're not in a stable economic situation, even if that's doing forget about foreign investment. They're not going to look to Canada and say, and to that point, I mean, when we see our reports, let's do and, and, and I'm not anyway. suggesting that's for instance uh, that says why Stellantis is spending policies in the game. I think the Prime Minister would like us to believe that they are. But are probably investors help are hurting, which the, we the, need the desperately in this country. Shooting for I'm going to think twice about Canada and in the global we can get picture, you've talked to us about this before, Moshe. Yeah, if, if we're not in a stable economic situation, whenever we hear uh, the, you can forget about it for investment. They're not going to look at Canada and say that looks like a pretty stable place. They got their act Even though our situation is bad, and I'm not suggesting that's for instance why Stellantis is now playing the game. Foreign investors that look, it, it might not be a perfect but situation that we have here, we, but we're which we need desperately most. in this country. Uh, and I'm going to think that's twice about Canada until we can get our act together economically. For, yeah, absolutely, uh, and, for and it's one of those things that find whenever we Canada, hear the, the government uh, talking about the problem that we find ourselves in, which is when the game starts, out, doesn't it? Though, even though you know, in other words, you know, bad, they, we can say least bad to you know investor A, whoever that might be, you know, that bring your money here. That, look, uh, you know, we, we're working not be better off than our friends in the states right now. We've got a better opportunity here. So what does the states do to respond? Well, it's the Inflation Reduction Act. In other words, we're going to throw a lot of goodies at you. Okay, here's some extra trinkets and some stuff that that will. Lower you there, even though the, the the business deal may not which be is when the game starts. Uh, the, that added value, you know, they, that's something we can Canadian say, politicians who, uh, you know, are, are investor A, whoever that doing. Be, I know we've uh, had to know, do it. Certainly, bring we did your money here. Uh, you know, and, we're even better off than our friends in the states right now. We've got a better opportunity here. It's not so. What does the states do to respond? Well, it's the Inflation Reduction No, and we're going to throw a lot of goodies at you. You know, one of those economic one-on-one technical things is that when we were lower you there, even though the business deal may not be as strong, that added value. Value stuff. And that's something be, uh, Canadian politicians of are, are not really comfortable it, doing. I know we've had to do it. Certainly, we did it with Volkswagen. That to be uh, and every dollar we're in that import, there also has like to that, be a dollar of foreign investment. It's not the typical Canadian approach, is it? So we know, and, and it's kind of interesting because you know, one of those economic one on one. You would think then that if nothing else, the government would try and order, which is those surprises going to like to come in from outside. Let's at least get it in industry accepting of foreign investment environment. It's one of those kind of Inside accounting with the labor skills that are every dollar we're at import, uh, and, and they're also trying to target a dollar of foreign investors that come into the country. So it would be helpful we, we then have to have it. some of these it, labor markets coming from somewhere outside uh, Like you said, you know, the, uh, you the, the government that has nothing else, the government would not comfortable creating that sort of targeted approach. going to have to come in from outside, uh, especially if some of those targets are from regimes or from environments that might not side with the labor skills that are workers. Well, how uncomfortable is this government? 
government, I mean, this particular federal government right now, uh, with that circumstance, because would this is be a government that, then that, as you say, has established their priorities. Uh, like you said, you know, this, you know this is a government that, in general, is not you know, comfortable a treating that sort of targeted approach, really uh, especially if some of those targets are from But it's costing an awful lot of money for them to do this, and they've got to know as they're writing the check for the environmental issues. How uncomfortable is this time, I mean, this particular federal government the inflationary with that circumstance on them right this now. This is a government that, uh, there's got to be immense say, pressure, I would think, establish their priorities uh, for them to say, look, you know, guys, uh, environmental uh, issues, don't be so ardent. You know, there's a debate these issues right now really until we get a recovery really industrial friendly, et cetera, et cetera. That would take an awful... Uh, but it's costing an awful Change lot of money for them to do this. this and they've got to know to start as they're, to, they're writing the check down on the environmental issues, ideological tactics uh, that they've that had. At the same time, they're hurting their own cause because of yeah, the inflationary pressures that it's, that it's putting on them right now. Uh, there's got to be immense pressure, I would think, at least in some circles, uh, for them to say, look, guys, don't be so ardent when it comes to some of these issues right now until we get our economy back on track. on that, they have to take an awful elsewhere. And again, I go back to hearing the prime minister talk last week. Every comment these, that he was making to people in the audience was, there are trade-offs involved, there are trade-offs involved. Yeah, and I, I think that's the trying to get them to realize that, hey, if we're going to take this particular stance on the environment, which is probably, uh, I think, the problem stance to take, but at the same time, they're understand that there's trade-offs. I'm not sure that to deliver on that, they make a compromise And again, I go back to correct here in the time and talk last week, and so it looks like pretty much every comment that you're making to the in the audience there are trade-offs involved, there are trade-offs uh, government is trying to get them to realize too many scandals. Hey, we're going to take this lack of stance, then there are the trade-offs involved. Uh, and that's uh, I, I a lot of governments that have been in power for almost a decade. He understands uh, that there's a trade-off. I'm not sure that government was showing the decisions that they're making, and there are, uh, it just comes with the territory that grabs all the law hanging within those trade offs. So it looks like the decisions that they're making are a little bit Somebody has to be the bad guy, though, in the cabinet meetings, don't they? And by that, I mean the one that's going to say, well, even to the prime minister, maybe not publicly, but certainly. You know, when we, I think at one point, the United Nations almost described Canada as the third world because of our dire circumstances. And along comes Paul Martin, the finance minister. And he played the bad guy. I mean, he did all the cuts that were necessary, and people hated him for it, but it got the country back Somebody in has shape. To be, uh, John Manley, a similar situation a few years ago. And by that, I mean the one that's going to say, well, you have even to the prime minister, maybe not publicly, but certainly. I don't know all the personalities in this current government, but I don't know that anybody is capable of playing that role now. Our dire circumstances, and along comes Paul Martin, the finance minister. And he played the bad guy. I mean, he did all the cuts that were necessary, and people hated him for it, but it got the country back in and yeah. so even if uh, John Manley, a similar situation saying, a few years uh, after Martin had left this one prime minister, you've got to have somebody that's willing to make the tough calls, so even if the prime minister won't. Guy in the room, I, I don't know all the personalities in this current government, though, Moshe, but I don't know that anybody is capable of playing that role now. I'm not sure help you, but I think that there's a difference between the Kretchen and the Martin government at this point in the last century and the Trudeau government at this century. I'm not saying that this government is a minority. And so even if there's the bad guy in the room, there's an element of consultation there that if they want it, you have another power that is affected. They have to deal with and so another party. That bad and so I think that's going to temper the role of the bad guy in the room. So do we just have to come to grips with the fact that and, and accept the fact that, that country, our recovery is probably not going to be as, as, as uh, you know, rapid as, as we would like it to be? You know, the, uh, Mr. Macklem's uh, suggestions about you know having inflation under control by late this year, early next year, just may be off by a little bit. Well, I think that inflation can be under control by the beginning of next year. So I think 
listening to him all along. So I'm not ready to back away from that. So do we just have to come to grips with the fact that and accept the fact that our recovery is probably not going to be as rapid as we would like it to be? You know, Mr. Macklin's suggestions about having inflation under control by late this year, early next year, just may be off by a little bit. I think that inflation can be under control by not going to be our father's thing all along. So I'm not ready to back away from that yet. I haven't seen the data that there is uh, a merit wrong on that level that we are um, the best among but yeah, you know, if, if we're talking so about whatever it is that we can avoid a recession uh, isn't going to be catastrophic uh, or we'll be into one, just unfortunately, the government is kind of constrained uh, the uh, in their ability to make sure that we avoid it. The good news well, it, is, uh, I've been saying all along, that if we do hit into recession, it's not going to be our fault. They seem to understand what the circumstances is as to how they want to respond to it. I guess there is a merit still something we're going to have to be tracking, but at least they seem to understand that they're and they're so on thin ice here right now, and they have to walk carefully. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, Moshe. Thanks so much for the time today. I really appreciate uh, it. The government can be doing more at this point. Take care. Uh, Moshe Lander from uh, Concordia well, University. And, as you say, when you heard the Prime Minister last month, and, and uh, even from his comments in Ottawa last week, they, they seem to understand what the circumstances as to how, you know, they want to respond to it. I guess it's, it's still something we're going to have to be tracking, but at least they seem to understand that they're they're on thin ice here right now, and they have to walk carefully. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, Moshe. Thanks so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Moshe Lander from uh, Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a hectic uh, couple of days. Um, well, actions have been going on for a few weeks, I guess, uh, south of the border. And that, of course, was the, uh, the discussion about uh, raising the debt ceiling. This is something that goes on every few years, of course, between uh, the Congress and the president, whoever it may be. And uh, it seems as if they've got an agreement in principle anyway with the, the discussions they had over the phone over the weekend. And U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says this agreement in principle to raise the country's legal debt ceiling has been reached with President Biden. Uh, McCarthy went on to say that uh, the Democratic president reached the deal after the two spoke uh, yesterday by phone. It has historic reductions in spending, consequential reforms that will lift people out of poverty into the workforce. Rain and government overreach. There are no new taxes, no new government programs. Uh, McCarthy off mic there. Sorry, we apologize for the uh, the quality audio there, but important story nonetheless. Now, if you think that means this whole thing is settled, uh, you would be mistaken. There's a lot of discussion yet to go. To give us a perspective on this, please to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, thanks uh, for being with us. Did you think we were going to get to this point and get a settlement on this? Because it looked pretty tenuous there for a while. Yeah, it did look, uh, it looked like things were approaching the cliff and potentially could go over. Uh, I don't think it's surprising to see that both sides came out to kind of claim victory here, uh, despite the fact that concessions were made from both the White House and from Republicans. Uh, but I also, uh, you know, it, it's also worth noting here that it's not officially out of the woods yet. I mean, this still has to go through the Rules Committee. It still has to go for a full vote on the House floor. And while Democrats are actively trying to whip the party together to say, look, we, we need to avoid a default. We need to get people on board with this. There are progressives on the Democratic side. There are hardliners on the Republican side who are not happy with this deal. And there is still that slim possibility that someone or some group could tank it. So they have one kind of big step down, but there is still a hurdle that is standing in the way. Well, I mean, even the comments initially, of course, Biden says, I think we got a deal here. And we heard the clip from McCarthy a second ago. But, but even guys like uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who's the uh, the Democratic leader in the House, is saying he's going to get some support for this. He didn't say he, he didn't say they were all going to be on side, though. 
So we're not quite sure how this is going to land, are we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and look, I think first and foremost, this needs to go through the rules committee in order to get to the House floor. And sure, you've got Democrats, you have Hakeem Jeffries, the, the minority leader, pushing his party to, uh, to to ensure that they don't allow for the United States to default. But backtracking that to the rules committee, uh, it is made up of nine uh, members of Congress. The majority of them obviously are Republicans. And then there are four uh, Democrats as well. But in order to give Kevin McCarthy the speaker's gavel earlier this year, he had to install some hard right uh, Freedom Caucus members on the rules committee, which basically is a gatekeeper. They control what goes to the House floor. And two of those Freedom Caucus members do not like this deal. And historically, uh, the opposing party always votes against everything that comes to the uh, to the rules committee. So if the Democrats on the committee say no, if these hardliners from the Freedom Caucus say no, that could kind of pooch this before it even gets to the House floor. So that's why this whip from the Democrats is important here. But it still is leaving a bit of a jitter here because this is not a done deal, despite the fact that you're hearing such high praise coming out of the White House for the success that they believe that this bill is going to bring. Reggie, if the Rules Committee turns thumbs down to this, is it dead in the water? Do they have to go back to square one or can they can they massage this thing? Well, I mean, look, it would have to ultimately go backwards and the, the legislative text would have to be rewritten. There may have to be a new negotiation that has uh, that's brokered here. Uh, and you may start hearing those new conversations, you know, kickstarted again of does the president need to start, you know, pondering using something like the 14th Amendment, which would obviously wind up in the courts because it's never been used before but to help the United States uh, avoid some kind of default. The Rules Committee is going to be key here. If it makes it to the floor, if it gets out of the Rules Committee, if precedent is broken and Democrats obviously decide to vote with it, uh, I think we are going to see here where the breaks in the party exist. There are going to be some progressive Democrats that say no. We'll see some of the more moderates join in, but then we will see where the breaks are in the Republican Party as well. It is not going to be a full unanimous vote for the GOP. Uh, so, you know, this is where the kind of brokering is going to have to help uh, going to have to happen. You're going to see Kevin McCarthy have to reach across the Democrats to say, look, if we want to avoid a default, we're going to need your help. So we'll see a bit of camaraderie here, but it potentially could come at a political cost for either Kevin McCarthy or for the president. Well, and that's the, the I guess, the conundrum that McCarthy finds himself in. I mean, somebody drew the analogy. He's like the puppet on a string. And, and as you say, that hard right caucus are the ones that are controlling the strings right now. They're the ones that gave him the job, but there's a long list of conditions. Okay, you could be speaker, but, and, and he's had to give in on so many of these issues right now. Uh, is his job on the line? Sure. Uh, and I think it's from some of the concessions uh, that were made that potentially makes him a little bit more vulnerable. Look, he came out uh, and, and tried to spin this this deal that's been cut uh, as something where his party gained everything and Democrats ultimately had to give up everything. But the realities here are the fact that his, you know, the Freedom Caucus can see through that. They can see what Democrats were able to get. This debt ceiling is now going to remain, uh, you know, in place for two years. There's not going to be a Republican fight against this next year during uh, an election year. Uh, you know, uh, non-discretionary spending didn't get cut as far as Republicans wanted it to go. There are only minor work requirements that were put in place for things uh, like like food stamp benefits that, you know, tens upon tens of millions of Americans come to rely on. So Republicans didn't get everything they wanted. And that leaves Kevin McCarthy in a vulnerable position if the Freedom Caucus, who is a small majority with a loud voice, 
ultimately decides to kick up, you know, a storm uh, and and possibly throw some kind of, you know, bomb into the deal that that puts his job in jeopardy. There's a real, you know, uncertainty to how Republicans are going to navigate this if there is a lot of pushback by the time this comes to the floor, if it comes to the floor. The other element to this, too, and I know you've been touching on this in your reporting, is even if this passes, and you'd like to think in some way, shape, or form it's going to, uh, that's only the beginning of the fight, isn't it? As you mentioned, there there have been some budget cutbacks that, that Biden has uh, has given into, and invariably they're on social programs. It's hardly ever on capital expenses. It's usually on things like, as you said, food stamps and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, and the, the the utmost here is you don't know who that's going to impact and to, to what degree. Uh, you know, they're going to have to work more to even qualify for food stamps now, so many hours, et cetera. Uh, President Biden says there are going to be exceptions to that, uh, but we don't know what those are yet or whether the Republicans are, are going to agree to those exceptions. No, we don't. Uh, a lot of the text uh, is still, you know, being rewritten and drafted, and a lot of it isn't clear yet. Uh, and there are concerns from deep within the progressive side uh, of the Democratic caucus who who are unhappy with the fact that the White House ultimately gave in and allowed for some concessions to be made uh, and for some restrictions to be put in place on voters that ultimately the Democrats say uh, would be the ones who who would rely on those that, you know, that this could potentially pose a problem for Democrats as a whole, but for Joe Biden uh, himself. I mean, look, he's an incumbent seeking re-election in 2024. His popularity numbers are not great. His job approval numbers are not great. And there is some in the Democratic caucus who feel uh, that, you know, taking away anything from anyone could could ultimately hurt or hinder their party, which is why there's internal documents that are being uh, dispersed basically as we speak now that are talking points to try and say, look, this is a win for America because you know, quote unquote, MAGA Republicans were ultimately trying to take everything away and we didn't let them do that. We, you know, put our fists down and what is being taken away isn't as far as it could have gone. So there's a bit of a spin in here for Democrats to say, look, we saved America from defaulting. It's going to hurt a little bit now, but in the long run, it's going to be good. Whether or not that resonates with the voters, that's something that we'll see in the kind of weeks and months ahead. This uh, the importance of this, of course, is really even dwarfed the other story. Of course, DeSantis making it official last week that he is now in the race, and to the surprise of nobody, I think we've known that for quite some time, obviously. But a rather inauspicious start to the campaign, though, wasn't it? Absolutely, it was. I mean, look, he he avoided uh, traditional media and decided to do it on Twitter, whether or not you know it was just a way to do something different, whether it was to avoid having to answer questions or be in front of a camera, or whether it was to speak to a very specific audience who uses Twitter, who has a viewpoint that may be a little further from center uh, to try and speak directly to them. It was a botched rollout. I mean, there were technical issues, uh, and that really became the 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 focus or the focal point of the kickoff of the DeSantis campaign. I mean, he's kind of ignored that now. He's pushed on. He's heading across uh, parts of the Midwest uh, starting tomorrow in Iowa. Uh, but ultimately, this is now the first real moment in this Republican race uh, that we're seeing true competition for Donald Trump. Look, the numbers are still way off. DeSantis still trails Trump by 20 to 30 points. Uh, but he has months and months and months. There's 74-ish weeks to the election. He has months to try and uh, run up to get to where Donald Trump is. We are going to see the fists out. We are going to see the attack ads out. But this is a real race now. It's just whether or not DeSantis can catch up or realities catch up to Donald Trump and his numbers start to come down.
Well, and as you've been reporting over the last couple of months now, because it's been going on that long. I mean, Trump has already had the. Well, I don't think I don't think Trump ever had the gloves on. I mean, he's he's been going after DeSantis from day one, ever since DeSantis even hinted that he might want the nomination. Uh, but DeSantis has always been hesitant to go after Trump in name, especially. Uh, he doesn't want to get down in the mud with him. Uh, any indication that that, that strategy is going to change? Well, I mean, it may have to. I mean, he's going to eventually, if he wants to get his numbers up, if he wants to to pull himself out of this 20 to 30 percent and chip away at that rock solid 35, 40 percent that forever stand behind Donald Trump, he may have to start going after the former president, but in a way that doesn't isolate him or make him problematic in the eyes of uh, of the base because their views are already, you know, entrenched. Donald Trump has told his base Ron DeSantis is the bad guy. And DeSantis now needs to try and work around that to say, look, come with me. I have less baggage with me, but also look, I can get the job done. Uh, and I was talking to a Republican strategist last week, just hours before DeSantis announced. Uh, and, and he made a point of saying, look, Ron DeSantis has a legislative track record that he can now bring with him on the campaign trail. That's something Donald Trump struggles with because he had very few wins in his presidency. Uh, and that includes a loss in 2020. And Ron DeSantis has, you know, just a couple of months ago from the midterms, an ability to say, look, I walked out of Florida with a 19 point victory over the Democrats. Was it potentially a poor Democratic candidate? Possibly. But he's going to run with that. The question is, does he have the ability to bring this to a national audience? And if he does, that is where he needs to start working into the Trump base to say, look, I can do it. He can't. We have to see if it'll work. But when you look at his, his legislative record, as you say, I mean, you know, the 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 the, the most famous parts of those are infamous, I guess, is, you know, he's taken on Disney. Uh, you know, the, he's you know, putting immigrants on planes and flying them up to Martha's Vineyard. I mean, is, is that something that's going to resonate with that? that Republican party, I, I not, maybe not the extreme base, I mean, because you know where they're going, but the, you know, Trump's support is, is with that extreme base, but there's a lot of other people that are disenchanted Republicans right now. that don't want Donald Trump there, but I can't see them going to DeSantis as an alternative. I mean, look, it's, we don't know where they're going to go. You know, do they want to go to somebody who's way further down on the list, like Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or an incoming Mike Pence? Their numbers are incredibly low. We don't know what their kind of sustainability is. Um, and, and you're right. It's unclear if what worked in Florida will work on a national scale. But I think, um, you know, that that is something that Republicans are trying to deal with right now. Donald Trump, you know, may not have the same track record that Ron DeSantis has. And, you know, a professor I spoke to at Brown University said, look, Trump may look like a safer bet to some of these waffling Republicans because he oftentimes doesn't go after and target individual groups like Ron DeSantis has. And that may actually lure over some more support for Trump. Again, something to wait and see. I think it's also remarkable bill that last week you had the president of Mexico come out uh, and issue a warning for uh, for Latin American people who are living in Florida and elsewhere to not vote for Ron DeSantis because of his treatment of immigrants, uh, you know, whether it's barring them from being able to travel in Florida or busing them or flying them elsewhere around the country. That is just a remarkable moment to see another world leader, especially from North America, get that involved in a presidential election to tell somebody who not to vote for. Ron DeSantis has plenty of hurdles that are in front of him. He believes that he's going to be able to clear them, but these are the early days here, and these are the ones that could potentially mean the most. Do those moderate Republicans, though, use DeSantis as, as the as the acid test here? Do they go to a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott and others and say, 
All right, you've seen his policies. Are you on that side or where are you? I mean, there are moderate Republicans right now that are looking for somebody to, to rally around and there doesn't seem to be anybody there uh, that, that's, that's got that, that charisma or even has the policies to try to attract them. No, and I think you may see a bit of a push here from someone like Tim Scott, who is a Republican, but can be a little bit more moderate, a little bit more centrist, despite the fact that he will lean heavily into some Republican policy, but not as far as someone like Ron DeSantis and not as, um, you know, baggage heavy as someone like Donald Trump. The issue here is, you know, name you know, recognizing and also just an ability to perform on a strong national stage. DeSantis can do it. Trump can do it. People further back. I mean, look, the numbers are are speaking everything right now. If you're in the low three, four, five and sixes right from the get go, even before some of the other names jump in, it is hard to get your numbers to come up no matter how much campaigning you can do. And then as those numbers go up, you face risks, uh, the risk of being attacked more heavily by the leaders, DeSantis and Trump. So this is going to be a fists out uh, Republican primary, much like what we saw in 2016, where there were so many candidates up on stage fighting to get into the White House, uh, Repu- moderate Republicans may not know where to go until it's almost too late when there are fewer left in the race. And then they may have to choose between somebody that they don't like, but ultimately they will stand behind whatever Republican is there. Well, it's like they're down to hand-to-hand combat in Congress right now when it comes to this this uh, arrangement uh, between uh, McCarthy and, and Biden. We'll see how that works out. And of course, we'll be watching for your reporting on that on Global National. Thanks so much for this, Reggie. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, uh, Global's guy in uh, Washington in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.